Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined us today. speaker and renowned thinker. He has worked in so many areas across education, including at the Grange Public School, in which he helped transform it into one of the most acclaimed learning environments in the world. In this episode, we talk about meeting and talking with President Obama, the importance of taking bold risks and not being a hypocrite, and how he would build an education system from the ground up. I hope that you get a lot out of our wide-ranging and fascinating discussion. Please enjoy. Hi Richard, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to me. I have been uh, a huge fan of yours for a really long time, so it's really good to uh, to get to talk to you all the way over in the UK. Hi Matt, it's brilliant to be with you, and thank you for all your support over the years. It's uh, it's great to get some time just to chat across the many thousands of miles. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's get started. What is your coffee order? I, listen, I, <laughs> I am the most simple man on earth and it is reflected in my coffee. I like my coffee black in a medium-sized cup, simple as that, that's it. And, and I don't even like this extra hot nonsense, just serve me a proper cup of black coffee, that's it. Sometimes simple is, uh, is the way to go. <laughs> um, uh, what, is, what item is still on your bucket list that you would like to pick? Oh, you know, I, I think about this every single year. It's one of those things I keep saying to my wife, we must do this, we must do this, we must do this. And uh, it's going to see the Northern Lights. That's staying in one of those glass-topped igloos, in yeah. uh, the north, you know, in the the circle somewhere, and just lying there looking at the northern lights. That's that's number one. Fantastic. Strangely enough, that is also on my bucket list, and I was talking to my wife about that today. So uh, I'll let you know. We'll, we'll, like, uh, we'll meet you there. We'll meet you there. It'll be great. <laughs> Fantastic. And if you could have a dinner party with anybody, who would be there? Oh, listen, I've I've got a list. Right, you ready for my list? Because okay. uh, I'm just thinking. You know, I'm thinking about how the conversation would be awesome, right? Yeah. Um, before we started recording, I've got to have Jacinda there. Jacinda Ardern would have to be at my dinner party now. Yeah. Um, I'd have to have Michelle Obama. Um, she would have to be there. Uh, Sarah Gilbert right now, who I think is the hottest name in the world because she's the woman behind the Oxford vaccine, tri- uh, vaccine development. Just to have somebody who is at the leading edge of science trying to solve the issues we're dealing with right now. How cool would that be to have her in the room? That would be amazing. Um, David Attenborough. I've got got to throw David into the mix because I just can't imagine anyone being as interesting at a dinner party as David. Um, A woman called Manoush Shafiq, who might not be as familiar to some of the people listening. Manoush is the director of the London School of Economics. and, And until recently... Um, they reckon she could well have become the first female governor of the Bank of England, which would have been seismic. But she's an incredible mind and also has some really powerful and interesting things to say about the future of education. And then finally, just betraying my love of soccer and one player in particular. And he, I don't even know how he'd mix it with the other people in the room. Thierry Henry. That would be, that's my, that's my, uh, that's my eclectic dinner party right there. Look, that, uh, that sounds like one, uh, one heck of a dinner party. So, uh, 
Uh, that'd be awesome. Speaking of uh, speaking of dinner parties, um, uh, the late Ken Robinson, you and your wife were out to dinner at one point. Tell us about what happened with that. Sounds oh like a pretty God. cool dinner party. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was very, very lucky to have Ken as what I describe as my professional father. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I connected with him for the first time before he became what I call Ted Ken and yeah. went stratospheric. Um, and after a few years of knowing each other, and he was an incredible mentor and support to me um, when I was uh, head teacher, principal at Grange. Um, he'd always be there as a critical friend. And over the years, he'd mentioned a few times to me that it would be, uh, be a good idea to consider going out and doing what he did um, and, and sort of uh, joining him on the circuit as a, as a speaker, as an author, trying to promote and share the kind of change and transformation in education that we both passionately yeah. believed in. And, I, you know, I did that thing as, as anyone who's at the cusp of changing a career might do. Um, I procrastinated, you know, that every time Ken and I saw each other, um, he'd, he'd say, well, have you made a decision? And I'd go, yeah, but, and then fling the, you know, the different mortgage and kids. And, and he, I mean, one night um, he was doing an event not far from me, actually, in Leicester, at a hotel in Leicester. Um, and he said, I'll come for dinner, because we're only about 40 miles away from where he was staying that night. He said, come for dinner, uh, bring Lynn, and uh, the three of us will have dinner together. It'll be lovely. We'll have a um, few glasses of wine. So get a, get a cab and we'll have a great evening. And of course, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, and she's never given me a straight answer to this. I think that Ken and my wife, Lynn, had had a conversation prior to us meeting for dinner that night, right? I can't, she's never been honest with me, um, but I'm sure they did. And um, we, we arrived for dinner and dinner was great we had the small talk what are we doing what are you up to all that kind of stuff and then it inevitably turned to so Richard have you made your mind up yet and um, <laughs> and it was like being it was like the two of them were staging an intervention really um, and so and so the, the 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 meal became one of right this is what you need to do. And, and you know, I was procrastinating. Ken was saying things like, look, honestly, you'll be great. I'll support you. Things will be fantastic. I even then threw in the thing about, um, I said, well, you know, I've been a public servant all my life. So my belief in public service and particularly working with kids, I said, how on earth do you square the fact that potentially, and I was looking at him by now, by now he was Ted Ken, and, and Ted Ken, you know, was able to command some pretty impressive fees as a speaker for obvious reasons, right? Yeah. Uh, and particularly in the corporate sector. Um, I said, how on earth do you square that? How do you square making the money and still being able to do the stuff you believe in? And so he then batted it away by saying, Richard, you have to operate the Robin Hood principle. And what that means is you take the money from the people who can afford to give it to you, and that allows you to do the stuff that really matters for nothing, right? Which is how he always lived his life, which people don't necessarily know about Ken, and, and deliberately so. He never, never talked about it. So that batted that one away. And then and I think we were slated to talk about this later, but we're, we're going to talk about it now because it happened in the same evening. My wife, as if by seamless magic, like the, they hadn't communicated beforehand. Um, I, I then turned around and did the mortgage thing. And Lynn, you know, how are we going to cope? We've got two young kids. 
and she turned around to me and she said one of the most powerful, potent things anyone's ever said to me. And for any of you that know um, Yorkshire in the UK and particularly Yorkshire women will know how feisty, tough and down the line they are, which is what my wife is. She turned around to me and she said, Richard, you have spent the best part of 20 years of your life telling kids to take risks and seize opportunities. She said, you are faced with two options. One is staying where you are and knowing you can do a job comfortably and everything's great. Or B, you can dive into the unknown and live a different world for a while. She said, are you going to play safe and be a hypocrite? And that was like, wow. (laughs) And Ken just sat there and said, don't look to me. I agree with her. And so that evening was remarkable because we left late. By the time we got home, it was about two in the morning. And it was a school day, so you can imagine. Um, And Lynn went to bed and I wrote my letter of resignation that, that early morning. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a potent and powerful experience with the two people in the world who I respected and meant more to me than anybody. And yeah, if I, to this day, I defy Lynn to, to tell me they hadn't cooked that up beforehand. Yeah. Wow. That's, that, that's, that's an incredible story. And thank goodness for, um, uh, thank goodness for wives and to, to tell you how it is. I know that, uh, my wife who is South African seems very similar to a Yorkshire woman and is yeah. very down the line says how it is and, and basically calls you out on your on your bs and makes you that's, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. that's such an incredible story and speaking of um speaking of incredible people tell me about the time that you met uh, president obama I, I i to be honest i thought the photograph on your website wasn't real i thought surely how has this not come up this tell me about the time that you, that you met yeah. president obama listen matt seriously i i don't like to talk about it much Um, (laughs) it's amazing because everyone I ever speak to including my speeches now so if anyone who's on this ever watches one of my speeches virtually or hopefully one day again live they will they just they need to expect the Obama story and the picture because you can imagine it's a really interesting story and actually a lesson in many ways into never turning down meetings um you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about our busy lives, no matter what we do in education or outside, we're busy. You know, one of the things we tend to do is pre-censure the people we meet too often. We kind of new people. Do you know what I mean? We kind of, well, yeah. really, is there relevance to my life, either personal or professional? Have I got time? Yeah. I don't know. I can't be, but whatever it might be, you know, and one of my philosophies um, has always been, and really it came from Ken's um, example, was meet everybody. Meet everybody, talk to everybody, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter what they do, no matter what level they do it at, meet everybody. Because the power of human connection is where everything's at, right? So that was the first, anyway, a few years ago, um, I was, I hope this is all right, because it's, you know, one of those stories, people are going, just get to the Obama bit, Richard. Um, <laughs> So I was a few years ago, I did a keynote. Um, Sorry, Richard, it's okay. It's, I, I want to hear how this happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so a few years ago, I was doing an event in Madrid, a corporate event, actually, nothing to do with education. And um, my Spanish agent was there uh, looking after me, as these people are wont to do. And he said to me, Richard, there's a guy who's also speaking today um, who I just, I'd love you to spend 20 minutes with. Um, he's an amazing man, very interesting. His name's Juan Verde. I'm not going to tell you any more about him, but I'd just love you to have a coffee. He's desperate to meet you too. Uh, have a coffee between your speeches. And so, you know, you go, yeah, cool. Okay. Anyway, I sat with, uh, met this guy, Juan, who it turned out 
um, at the time had been until, because it was just after Obama had left office, um, had been Obama's senior Latino strategy advisor during his eight years in the White House wow. and had also worked for President Clinton and was at the time um, one of the senior, um, senior advisors to the Clinton campaign. Anyway, we had a really fascinating conversation. Um, he, it turned out he read and looked into some of my work around education and actually as a result had said, um, look, I'd love you to talk to the Clinton team about education policy because Hillary, and it's so sad for all kinds of reasons she never made it because Clinton, Hillary Clinton's passion, one of her key passions was education and the belief that education should be built upwards, not downwards. In other words, she wanted to reverse American education. So it moved away from being dominated by the powerful universities and colleges, and more importantly, by the, um, the publishing industry and the examination industry, who were all wrapped up in the same group, and actually build an education system predicated on early years practice and pushing that that way, which would have been upwards, which would have been so exciting. Mm, um, so anyway, I, I got the chance to talk to the team a couple of times. Obviously, the election didn't go, didn't go well, and, and that seemed to be the end of that. Um, and a, a while later, a long while later, actually, um, Juan contacted me again out of the blue. And he said, Richard, you know, I so enjoyed meeting you, so enjoyed your work. He said, I'm doing some work now with um, President Obama. Um, now he's out of office. We've set up something called the Advanced Leadership Foundation. And, and the, it's a, it's a not-for-profit. And the idea of the Advanced Leadership Foundation is they scan the world, particularly in developing countries, um, for young people who show the potential to be real system leaders, um, leaders that might change uh, their local communities, bigger, broader, and eventually even become global leaders. And of course, the, the, the philosophy was, we're in a world that's deeply complex, so we need to cast our net as wide as possible and fish in the biggest pool we can of human potential. And um, so that's what we're doing. And then when we find these young people, wherever they are in the world, we put them through a program where they get access to global thinkers in all walks of life. So for example, Obama is directly involved, is Michelle is involved. There are other leaders, Kofi Annan, um, Nobel Prize winners, um, you know, all cut and Daba Mandela, who's Nelson's grandson. All of these people are involved in supporting and working with these young people. And he said, we'd love you to, to get involved. And of course, you don't say no, right? You don't go, let me think about that. I'm not sure I've got this. You go, I'm in. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we then, the next thing I know, he said, look, we're doing a fundraiser in Spain um, and Barack's going to be there. And we'd love you to come and speak at the fundraiser. And if you do, because um, it's a not-for-profit, there's no fees or anything. But if you do, Barack said, you know, he'd love to give you 15 minutes just as a thank you for, and I'm like, again, uh, I, in fact, I think I'd already booked my seat on the plane. I think I arrived three months early and just Amazing. waited. Um, and so we did this thing and true to his word, um, you know, I got 10 to 15 minutes with, with President Obama and it was, <laughs> there are many things, you know, throughout your life, you turn around and say things like, that was the most um, powerful moment of my professional life. 
I did, by the way, I did make the mistake originally of saying that was the most important moment of my life until my wife reminded me we'd met, got married and had two gorgeous children. So I've now reframed that to the most important moment in my professional life. Um, (laughs) And it was, it was, it was truly, truly extraordinary, you know, to have that time with one of the great icons of any century. And, and it, what was amazing about the meeting was that, you know, people often say to you, um, don't meet your heroes because they'll always disappoint. And actually meeting him was the complete opposite. He was more than what you'd want him to be. I mean, what struck me from the first second I was allowed to be in his company, and that was, that was a thing. You know, they were literally in the room with us, 50 security officers around the room, the perimeter of the room, um, and you were screened and all the rest of it. And what was fascinating, and I'll come back to that, about the photograph that people will see if they haven't seen it already. Gar- I guarantee it's my cause. Everyone in the world will see the picture of me with Obama. Um, was that when they took the picture, they said, you will get a copy of the picture in two weeks' time. And I said, oh, right, can you, what, what's that about? And they said, because any picture taken, official picture taken with um, uh, President Obama will be screened. So we will go into background checks of who you are, what you are, what organizations you belong to, um, any of your history. Because, And you understand it when they explain it. They said, the president cannot afford to have his picture taken with anybody who might belong to an extremist group or, you know, so we will do a background check. And then when we're happy with who you are, we'll send you the picture. So, but I got this time with him and, and it was, it was, yeah, he was everything and more you'd want him to be. His humility was, he was just down to, you, you had to pinch yourself to remember you were talking to President Barack Obama, right? He was just an incredibly, like a lot of the people at that level that I've had the opportunity to meet in my life, he was deeply curious. He was far more interested in my story than telling me his. He was, he was an incredible listener. And what really struck me about him during the day as I got to see him at close quarters and then speak to a very large room full of people was I think one of his greatest strengths is his ability to distill the incredibly complicated into stuff that's mm-hmm. tangible and simple for people to understand. And yeah. by the way, that made me think to myself, you know what, because he started out as a, as a university lecturer, a law lecturer. Wow. And actually, you can see that he is an outstanding teacher, first and foremost, yeah. right? One of, those, one of those traits as teachers, we often throw away. And it, the number, we'll come back to this too, I'm rambling, but the point is, when you meet people like that, what you realize is how phenomenally gifted and talented great teachers are. And one of the tragedies is great teachers never see themselves as having great talent. But yeah. that ability to distill the complex into stuff that's tangible is a world-class quality. So anyway, yeah. we had the yeah. time together and I got the chance to ask him one question, right? And um, I'd, I'd prepared it. And the question was really simply, I said, what, what was the, what, the most important thing you learned during your time in the White House. And I thought, I wondered if he would answer it, you know, honestly, or give me some stock standard response. He said, actually, it's, it's a really good question. He said, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, when I started as president, I surrounded myself with the most brilliant technical minds on earth, you know, economists, scientists, lawyers. I made sure that my team was picked from the best of the best, just brilliant technical minds. 
He said, but when I reflect back on my eight years on the White, in the White House, what I realize is that most of the problems that crossed my desk, and just, just pause on that for a minute, the problems that crossed his desk, right? He said, we think we have a bad day sometimes in school as educators. Can you imagine? Um, you know, we, we may have to deal with a really a difficult parent. He may have had to deal with Vladimir Putin or worse, you know? Um, he said, when I look back on, on the problems that crossed my desk, he said, what I realized is that virtually none of those problems at their core were technical by nature. They were human. Yeah, they right. were about love, anger, hatred, jealousy, greed, tribalism, fear. He said, naturally, it made me understand very quickly that the way to solve most problems is not our reflex, which is to find a technical solution first but actually to understand the human condition before we do anything else. And I think in many ways, you know, like so many of the, the genius things that he's done, he distilled such complexity into something so elegant and simple, but so deeply profound. Yeah, Do you, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. Um, and gosh, there's so many, there's so many questions I, I, I have about that, but how important do you think uh, sorry, President Obama seems, and, and obviously um, uh, Sir Ken seemed to be people that were so self-aware and so able to um, understand themselves and their strengths and their challenges, but also be, to be able to relate really well to people. Do you think leadership and, do you, sorry, do you think self-awareness is really important as educators or as leaders, or, or what role do you think that plays? Um, I, think it, I think it's massive. I think it's absolutely massive. Yeah. And, and sometimes we underplay it. And, and sadly, I think in the current climate, you know, education seems to reflect society so often. At the moment, we seem to be living in such a deeply polarized environment within education, where yeah. we've gone back to this kind of accusatory thing of polarized beliefs. You know, you're either a, a traditionalist, an advocate for, for knowledge and information and, and cognition, or you're a, an advocate for some kooky, creative, artsy, all this kind of... And, you know, even... So in the last few years of his career and life, Ken was often demonized as being someone who didn't understand education, was anti-knowledge, anti-science, anti... And of course, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. And, and I think that, you know, we've seen the same thing in global politics with, with the rise of, of kind of Trumpian politics, of um, Brexit divisive politics, of, of Bolsonaro extreme politics in Brazil, wherever it is, the rise of the right in Europe. And I think what's really interesting is that what I've learned about leadership in particular and education um, is those people that try to polarize, that believe there has to be a black and white, that there is one simple logical solution to every problem are never healthy leaders or healthy educators because human development, the human condition, humanity itself is a complexity that isn't just wrapped in the technical, in the straightforward, in the simple, in the black and white. We are deeply emotive, emotional creatures. We are curious, creative. We are predisposed. We're the only um, species on earth predisposed to actually want to hurt other people. Some, you know, some people actually want to physically hurt other people. Um, for, for reasons other than territory or food, you know, so we're deeply complex. And actually, when you look for me at great leadership and great teachers, their number one quality above all things is their emotional intelligence, their connectedness to others. You know, what you notice, 
There's a great story about Abraham Lincoln, who many people will think of as one of the greatest leaders in, in the history of the world. And many people, when they think about Abraham Lincoln, um, think about the Gettysburg Address, right, as one of the greatest speeches in history. Now, what people often don't think about with the Gettysburg Address is that it was only, and I can't remember the exact number, but it was under 250 words, the Gettysburg Address, right? It was like a tweet. It's like a tweet. Yeah. It was 250 words, which if you think about it is nothing, right? But it's held up as one of the greatest speeches of all time, 200, less than 250 words. And when he was asked about um, the speech, because at the time it had incredible potency, it shifted American mindset, right? Yeah. Um, they, somebody said to him, well, how did you get it so right? And how were you able to do it in 250 words? And his answer was really simple. He said, because for days and weeks before I made the address, I listened to the people I was going to be speaking to. Wow. And I tried to work out where they were coming from, their worldview, their position, their experience. So that when I made that speech, I was connecting to them on a level that came from them first, not from me. And in many ways, if you think about education and you think about leadership in education or any other walk of life, and by the way, for me, every teacher is a leader of people. Um, you know, what is the great art, artistry of teaching? It's about knowing you have a bit, like I've said before, you, you, there are things you have to get across to young people, concepts, knowledge, skills. Yeah. But the art of a great teacher is to make sure they connect that knowledge, concept and skill to the experience of the young people they're working with. And again, you know, a class full of young people, there are 30 different human beings with different uh, mindsets, with different experiences, with different ways of seeing the world, different emotional states. And the great teacher doesn't just stand there and preach at those 30 kids and go, right, you're all gonna get it my way. Great teachers might deliver a concept, but then work the room and make sure that they're talking to each individual student or group of students to make sure they find mm -hmm. that point of connection. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, it goes back to this thing that the greatest quality of a leader, and I believe the greatest quality of an educator, is the ability to listen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that takes huge, not just emotional sophistication, but actually it takes great self-confidence too. And I think that's why I feel so sad about the polarization we see both in our own profession right now and in the wider world. Because it seems to me that the people who are deliberately creating those divisions and false polarizations are people who lack the confidence, the ability to emotionally connect and understand a deeper narrative. And I think if we're serious about transforming education, that needs to be our first priority. We need to develop the emotional capacity of the people who are leading our children. Wow, there's, Richard, there's, there's so much in that, uh, obviously, and we'll, we'll try and touch on some of those points, but you talked about the complexity of schools and the importance of listening. And, and I just wanted to maybe jump uh, back to some of the, the brilliant work that you did at the Grange School. And what were, um, what were some of the things that you had to do? So for those people that aren't aware, it might be uh, worth giving a, a couple of points, but what were some of the things that you had to do in terms of listening to the, the school community and getting them on board? Because... 
that story in itself is amazing. So would you mind spending a little bit of time unpacking yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, just to give people context, it was a, a primary school um, in the middle of the UK between two of our Midland cities, Nottingham and Derby, um, in a place called Long Eaton, which, and I'm sure that, you know, there'll be people listening to this in Australia who will understand what I talk about when you, you understand what I mean by the challenge of provincialism. Um, because Long Eaton was, um, because it was caught on the cusp between two cities, it had a fierce self-identity and it didn't believe it belonged to either Nottingham or Derby, but it also meant that it became a very introspective insular place. So people never left Long Eaton. You were only considered a citizen of Long Eaton if you were born there, raised there, lived there, died there. I remember driving through Long Eaton a number of times. Um, I yeah. don't know if we stopped, um, but, um, but yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. Yeah, very few people do stop Matt, to be honest. But it, the thing was, right, it was this incredibly insular community. And the school was filled with people who had, it was one of those schools where most of the staff had either been there themselves as students and come back, yeah. or had got kids or grandchildren at the school. You know, it was that kind of incredibly incestuous environment. Um, anyway, the school had, just to give a bit of background context, the school had been basically failing for about a decade. And there had been um, eight school principals, head teachers in that decade who, have cut, who had come and gone and basically, you know, for whatever reason, just didn't make it. And, and it was a really, I, the, I didn't uh, apply for the job because I was courageous or because I thought I was gonna be the superstar or, because I was very young when I applied for the job and actually found out about the school by accident because I'd been doing a project for the local government on trying to re-motivate demotivated boys in reading and writing. And one of the schools they wanted me to try and hook into the program was Grange. So I went and visited and found out the context, the story, met the acting head teacher who had actually been at the school in her role as deputy for over 30 years and had never wanted the headship, but had had the, the acting headship thrust on her. You can imagine that many times. And she said to me, Richard, I just, I'm not, I'm, I don't want the job. Anyway, it was one of those things, you know, we all feel it either professionally or often personally, you know, if you're looking for a house um, and you go visit maybe a, a dozen houses that all on paper look pretty much the same, same floor pan, same size, same value, same neighborhood. And for what, for one reason or another, you walk into one and you just fall in love. Right. And you can't, you can't explain why. And you know, you start imagining family Christmases there and you think this is the one this, this yeah. is a spiritual draw. Right. And, I felt that about Grange. I wasn't looking for a school headship. I wasn't looking for it. I'd only just taken on this new job. And, and, but I couldn't shake it. So I applied for the job, got it. And I got it again, not because I was a superstar, but it, it turns out I was the only serious applicant, which, which was a dent on the ego. You know, when you get a school principal's a head teacher's job, it's like, I am now a school principal. I have overcome a leader. I've risen to the top. But when you find out you didn't have any competition to rise to the top in, it kind of checked. But anyway, I yeah. found out not long after why. And the reason why was because the community, the education community knew the school was in such a bad shape and had been for so long that the government, the then government, were planning to shut the school down, um, fire everybody, rebrand it, put in an entire new staff board and all the rest of it, and relaunch it as a new enterprise. So, of course, nobody in their right minds wanted to be connected at that time prior to that happening with the death knell of this environment. So I got the job. I was the only applicant because I was the only person in the education community who didn't know that this was the plan. And actually, it was a good thing. It was absolutely a massively. Yeah. yeah, 
Uh, you know, it was only 10 seconds after I signed my contract that the director of education explained it to me. But you're right. You know, it was really interesting. I went into that job with two characteristics that I think at the time were really useful. I went into my first job as a head teacher with the mix of arrogance and ignorance. Right. I absolutely believed in what I believed in. And I had no idea what could happen to me if it all went pear shaped. So I arrived in this place and it was it was a damaged environment, Matt. You know, the interesting thing was, it wasn't a lack of passion or care because these people had grown up in this community. This was their community school, right? Their children and grandchildren were at the school. They'd been to the school. These people cared deeply. And I think actually what had happened over the 10 years was there had been so many external interventions that these people had just had the passion sucked out of them. And they'd become just so completely... Um, you know, they would just do it to me. They were passive. It was like, just tell me what to do. I give up. Just tell me what to do and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Um, and so the passion had gone and the teachers felt it. The star, the staff felt it. The kids felt it. The parents felt it. And, and in a way, it was that thing about disenfranchisement that I think on, on some level, so many educators feel so much of the time. Um, and so really for me, the first guy should have gone in there. I was under pressure to go in there and give the school a bollocking and say, you've got to, we've got to get our exam grades up. We've got, to, we've got to implement a curriculum that's more efficient. We've got to, got to be ready for the national inspectors to come in and tell us this, 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 this. And I thought, you know what? That's what the last eight school principals heads have done. And actually what I wanted to do was empower the community first and give them back a bit of uh, magic. I wanted them to be able to wake up in the morning and think I can't wait to go in today and go home at night and think I've worked incredibly hard, but actually I've loved every minute because yeah. I feel like a professional again. Yeah. So we did, I mean, I did a number of things. You know, I, I, I spoke to every single member of staff before I, once I'd been appointed before I actually started. I even, and this is a top tip, by the way, for people who are taking on a new leadership role in a new school, if you want to truly understand the community. And by the way, these were in the days where I had hair. That's important to the story. Um, I went and had my hair cut at the local hairdressers, the nearest hairdressers to the school. Wow. Because one of the things I've always thought is the best place to get gossip in a community is in a hair salon. And actually, I wanted to know the parents' take and the community's take on the school. So I went to have my hair cut a couple of times in wow. the local hairdressing salon. The first time they didn't know who I was. Yeah. So they were really, I got some really interesting info. And the second time they did, and it was slightly different, but there was, it was, by then it was like, oh, we need you to know this and you need to do this. So it was great. And so sorry to interrupt. It's just so fascinating yeah. because you obviously, I think quite often in schools, we expect communities to come to us. Mm -hmm. as opposed to actually going to them. And I think that's such a, because that means that you're meeting on their terms and their shops and their businesses and their communities, as opposed to inviting parents um, and grandparents to come to schools where they may not have had a great experience at school. I think that's such an important, such an important point. Sorry, please continue no, with your story. That's it. No, and by the way, Matt, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, this is a hugely important thing that, and, and, you know, by the way, we won't dwell on this today, but, you know, the fact that COVID experience we've all lived through just shows how difficult it is for people to live in an environment where they think stuff is being done to them mm -hmm. and they have no control. 
right yeah. that's why so much there's so much anxiety one of the reasons why there's so much anxiety and fear at the moment and that happens in a school community when a new head starts who comes from outside who maybe looks like doesn't look like them you know they're more middle class or they're more you know they're more professional or more they don't speak the same or they use a complex vocabulary you know the community's first instinct is here we go again somebody from outside is going to do it to us whether it's you know the staff the kids the parents yeah. and i think that point is so vital that a school feels that you're going to connect to their community rather than make them connect to you um, and so having that that reconnaissance is huge. And actually, it had a massive impact on the way we then rad rage, because what was really clear to me, having been an outsider and truth be told, not really knowing a lot about not long eaten at the time, a bit like you, you know, having driven through it a free few times, but never. Yeah. So, in fact, probably, if I'm honest, accelerated through long eaten. And locked the doors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what you realized was they had a profound sense of community of togetherness. Yeah. Um, like a lot of these provincial communities do, of supporting each other, of emotional connection, but they had a really limited understanding of the world and the potential, and therefore aspirations were limited within the community. Um, and we might come back to that as the podcast yeah. goes on. But, but the important thing was that listening. And I remember one conversation I had that was hugely important. Um, and it, it's an example I share often with people, with a, with a teacher. So during my individual conversations with staff um i met a guy called john who had been teaching in the school 28 years yeah and john came into my office uh and because I, I was given an office even though i hadn't started yet to talk to people and um I, I asked him about his you know how he felt he said look richard you seem like a nice guy which is like okay thanks john okay. <laughs> he said and uh and he said, I'm going to give you a go, actually. He, I, I, think, I think you care about us. And so I'm going to give you a go. But I need you to know that I won't do anything over and above my job description. Because frankly, I'm just looking now to retire. Right? And you're thinking, huh. Right? Yeah, but the thing was, John was like 15 years away from retirement. Gosh. Right? So this guy, like, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, I'm not. Anyway, I didn't really know what to do with that at the time. And I'll just... Fast forward a few, a few months down the line, and we'd started to develop some of the things we were developing at the school. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to develop, develop in the school was, because um, a lot of what we did was about experiential learning, and, and that's where we developed something called the Grangeton Project, which was in essence a town which the children were gonna run themselves, which was a parallel of the real world. Amazing. And one of the things I wanted to develop in our town was a retail sector. So I wanted shops and stuff, right? And I wanted the kids to understand economics. And I wanted them, and they, remember, these were primary age kids. I wanted them to understand how to set up a business where you buy stuff and sell it and all this stuff. And um, anyway, as luck would have it, one day I'm walking into the staff room to make myself a cup of coffee. And John is holding court because you know these Johns, they're, they're the alpha teachers, as I call them. They can be male, female, it's not a gender thing. And every school has an alpha teacher. The teacher that's wizened, they've been there years. And although the head likes to think they're in control, the truth is the culture of the school is run by the alpha teacher. You know, they're the, they're the cynic, the one in every meeting that goes, oh, what goes around comes around. The one that always goes, that's a lovely idea, but. Um, and incredible potential as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of people, I think, are drawn to that and listen to these. Yeah, oh, 
and that's yeah. the put. So this this guy John was holding court in the staff room. He had his minions around him, and he knew what he was doing when I walked in because I heard him raise his volume, and he said, "He said, you know." Of course, I never wanted to be a teacher. This wasn't directed at his minions. I knew it wasn't. It was directed at me. He said, I blame my bloody father for, uh, for me being a teacher. And I went over ignoring him, carried on trying to make my coffee as loudly as I could. To, you know. yeah. And it turns out the story was that he'd always won. His father had run a local retail shop, a local corner shop uh, on the high street. And as a kid, he'd always gone in and helped and worked in the shop. And he'd had dreams of taking over the business, you know, and maybe building it into a little empire or something. I don't know. And he said, I blame my father because my father was so crap at business that by the time I got old enough to take over the business from him or work in the business full time, the business had gone bust. He said, so I needed to find something else to do. He said, the only thing that I could see available was teaching. So that's how I got into it. Right. Anyway, by then I'd left the room. But of course, he'd given me a gift. And this is the thing about incidental listening, right? Yeah. Because remember, I was looking to build a retail business. So over the next couple of days, I did a bit of research. And then I asked John to come and see me. And it was one of those interesting psychological moments. Because of course, John being asked to come and see the head, despite his experience and wizened, um, you know, skepticism and all that stuff, was like a kid who'd been summoned to see the head teacher. Because the first thing he said to me was, what have I done now? And I said, no, no, John, really. He said, I, I said, I couldn't over help but overhear your conversation in the staff room the other day. He said, oh, yeah, that, yeah, sorry. I said, no, no, it's fine. I said, but I had never realized that you'd always had a passion for retail. I said, yeah, yeah. And his eyes lit up a bit. I said, well, look, um, as you know, we're building this town thing. And I would love you to be the custodian and the lead on the retail sector stuff. And he went, what, me? I said, yeah. He said, I said to him, and as it happens, I've just spoken to the, lo the local supermarket who run um, middle management retail, two-week retail courses for their aspirational retail managers. And I've managed to blag us a free place on their next two-week course. Do you fancy it? And he said, what, seriously? I said, yeah, don't worry, because we'll use it instead of you going on courses about how to teach maths more efficiently, go and do a retail management course. And he was like, oh my God. He said, I'd love to. And I said, when you come back, if you're up for it, I'll give you a budget and you can design and run the retail yeah, part brilliant. of the business, the school. And he, so he went and he came back a changed person. Anyway, you can imagine as time grew on, he became so absorbed in what we were trying to do. He became more than an advocate. And actually, by the time I left the school, he'd been promoted to assistant wow. headship. Wow. Um, so I, I hope, I've given you a very, another very long-winded answer, but I hope that kind of sums up what you were getting at, really. No, it, it, I mean, the, like I so said, there's, there's so many points, so many wonderful points, Richard, that, like, you raised in that. I mean, one of them is, is well, firstly, obviously listening and finding out what people are interested in. Um, and secondly, actually taking the time to act on that and, and not being busy enough in, with your own job. I'm sure you've got a lot, you had a lot going on at the time trying to run a, a failing school, but actually taking the time to, to play the long game with, with some of these teachers and to say, look, this is what you're passionate about and to actually tap into that. And then to see the success of that is really, is really quite amazing. And, um, and uh, like, just as we, we listen to what the, the children in our class, actually taking the time to, to actively listen to staff as well, I think is, is hugely important. Do you uh, still stay in contact with John? Uh, I don't now. He retired a long time ago and I haven't spoken to him for, for some time. We used to go for a beer regularly yeah. for a few years. And then, 
you know, just done for lives drift apart. He's, he's now spending a lot of his retirement, well, up until COVID, traveling the world and seeing all the things he, you know, yeah. the bucket list stuff. So I haven't seen him in, in quite a while, but we, we every so often we bump into each other and, and hopefully when this nonsense is done, we'll be able to go for a beer again and I'll be able to let, he can make me feel jealous by showing me the snaps of the latest incredible places he's been to. Fantastic. Before we move on to the next question, I just need to ask is, or, or was the Grange a government school? Yeah, it was a state run government school. Yeah. My next question is how on earth did you get away with that? <laughs> well again you know one of the things is about me matt Amazing. i'm not i'm, I'm not um, i'm not a talented guy i'm just a lucky guy you know i stumbled across ken robinson i stumbled into meeting obama i stumbled into finding grange um and the thing is that grange was in the context that was almost perfect because at the time the government as you know as i said we're gonna kind of close it down so they'd stop putting any resource in there they just kind of weren't bothered anymore they weren't going to waste more time and energy in this school that eventually they were going to take through the legislative process and do the close and reopen thing so they left us alone which was amazing and by the time they came back and realized what we'd done um you know and, and we never did we didn't do it for this although of course it's vital and and i would have been fired if this hadn't happened by the time they come back, you know, within 18 months of starting this process at Grange, our academic outcomes had gone from the bottom 5% nationally to the top 5% nationally. So, of course, at that point, how could any government turn around and go, you can't do this? And actually, I remember saying to a national inspector at the time, because they came in and we had that many inspections. We also had Cambridge University, the government uh, paid Cambridge University to come and do a research project on us to make sure what we were doing was really working. Um, and, you know, one of the things I used to say to, to the government at the time was, um, if you can prove to me there's a better way for my kids, then we'll do it. If you can't, leave the building. Um, and, and of course, you can be that cocky when things are working. But I, the truth is, we got away with it because the school was in such a bad state when, when I, I stumbled across it. Um, and also, by the way, and it's just a side issue, but it's very it's important thing to say, um, the school didn't transform because of me. It transformed because of the community. And all I did was do the listening thing and empower them to do the stuff they believed in and then controlled it. Then it was my job to hold them to account for, for the process. But they were, it was a, a, a remarkable snapshot in time. It was a bit like the Beatles. It was a bit like the great Manchester United soccer team. It was a collection of unique people who came together at the right time under the right vision in the right circumstance who achieved something remarkable. But the government in the end, in fact, by the time Blair um, really understood what we were doing to his credit, he invited us on regular occasions to attend policy meetings to try and help them understand how we'd done what we'd done. Wow. So, you know, in the end, you know, they, they, they actually embraced what we were doing, which was, which was a mark of the government at the time as much as it was us, actually. Wow. Wow. That's, that, that's amazing. And, and, if, and obviously, we all uh, grow and develop in our own leadership. And if, looking back, if you uh, had inherited uh, Grange again now, exact set of circ same circumstances, um, exactly the same team, exactly the same educational needs, would you do anything different? in retrospect, do you look back and go, ah, okay. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, a huge number of things. Firstly, just to, just to tell you that 
um, we, the, the school went through quite a rocky period after I left. They appointed the wrong successor and actually they put in a government man, right? Yeah. To try and weirdly, because by then we were changing government. It was a different era. Um, you know, after a couple of years, we were, we were into a very different climate here and they put in a government man and, and that was an absolute disaster. It didn't end well. He was there for a decade and didn't end well. But actually the woman who's now taken over was one of our young assistant heads uh, when when I was there, she's now the principal, and the school is going in a phenomenal direction again, which is really exciting. Um, would I have? I mean, there are two things. One, tragically, in the current climate in UK education, I wouldn't get anywhere near the principal's job in that school. Um, I would just not be allowed to do what we did then, um, because the curriculum is so much more rigid. It's we've gone back to a far more kind of. Uh, rigid academic curriculum. Now, I'm not gonna say whether that's right or wrong. As I said earlier, I'm not gonna start trying to polarize or politicize. It's just so that the climate wouldn't be right. Yeah. Um, but if, I, if the climate was still the same, yes, there are a number of things I would have done differently and particularly on a personal level. Um, I think it got to a point where I was in love with innovation. And actually one of the reasons, joking apart earlier when we talked about uh, me leaving, one of the reasons I did leave in the end was because I was becoming incredibly conscious of the fact that I was almost, we were almost innovating just because it was fun rather than it was right. Um, there were things we implemented too quickly that needed embedding. And again, I think that was down to my frailty as a leader because I'm just not built that way. I'm somebody that loves to keep doing new, 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 new. Um, and the school needed a period of embedding. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things, one of the dangers, again, when I reflect on a very personal level is, I'd, I was already by then doing so many interesting things that I'd forgotten what it felt like to be on the ground as a class teacher. And we started trying to do too much. And, and I think some of the teachers found that very challenging. Um, but, but the principles, I think we would do absolutely the same thing. That, that absolute passion and commitment that we all had to ensure that learning was contextual and experiential and really related to children's lives so that they could see the value and trying to make sure as little of the learning as possible was abstracted. Um, very much like early years practice with the best early years practice, which I still to this day believe is the finest model of, of education in the world. I think great early years practice is the model we should all be trying to follow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think on a number of a number of levels, I think the principles and vision would have been the same. I think on a, a personal human leadership thing, I think I've learned things over the last decade that I would change around the way I led. Yeah. And thank you so much for your honesty, Richard, because I think it's so easy to see all the highlights and to go, okay, wow, like, look at this. But also, like, I think if you weren't evolving and changing as a leader and as a person, then there'd probably be something wrong. <laughs> um, I know that there are so many things that I would do differently if I was starting my career again. And, um, but also, I don't really have any regrets. You know, we just do the best we can in the moment. And as long as no one gets hurt, we're, we're, we're all right. I, I think the trick is in exactly what you said a minute ago, which is the role of a leader is never to be perfect and have the right answer. But it's always have to have the ability to learn. You know, one of the, the most important traits about leadership, not just in education, is our ability to learn. And one of the things I often say to people, and again, going back to this big polarized debate thing right now, 
it's one of the most important qualities that any of us can possess is we should challenge our own practice and actions first before we challenge the practice and actions of others and if we don't have the capacity to challenge our own practice and actions and thoughts and beliefs then frankly we have no no right to to put our skin in the game of the debate we have to be our own harshest critics we have to be prepared to reflect first yeah or have a wife as uh, you do and I do the, oh, the truth. Boy, yeah, who yeah. frankly just scared the living daylights out of us. That that would help too, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's 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 so incredible. And I think we we expect our children. Going back to our initial point about your parent, your parents, or your wife saying, "Are you gonna? Is your are your actions basically going to line up with what you say you, they yeah. do?" And we yeah. we expect our children to be innovators and people that take risks and have a go and get things wrong. But I think sadly, as we get older, that um, uh, tends to be uh, either beaten out of us or we just we, we just grow up and stop being I think I mean I think you're right it's another whole podcast but you know yeah. one of the things that we do is we tend to fear failure um, you know as young children and I don't know how you percentage it I've never really understood it but I remember when I was training to be a teacher myself one of my lecturers firing something at us which has always really stuck with me in essence which was that we learn somewhere between 70 and 75 percent of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five years old right, right. now I kind of don't know how you percentage it but I get the sentiment and and there's definitely you know the scientific scientific evidence of that in so many ways about brain function the, the way the brain resource works but also emotionally and I think what's really interesting, of course, is in those first five years of life, we don't understand that getting something wrong is bad. And, and one of the most important characteristics of great learning, of course, is it's tough, it's hard, and it should be. And it's tough and it's hard because you learn nothing new by getting something right. And, and I think that's a fault of the education system to an extent sometimes. We, we over-celebrate when kids get stuff right consistent, you know, pages of math sums with ticks next to them and we reward them for that. Mm. And actually the question we should be asking is, are we actually wasting that child's time? Because you only learn something new at the point of a mistake or the realization you don't know something or you can't do something. Yeah. Now, of course, young kids thrive on that. It's everything's new to them. Every day is a challenge. Most of the stuff they do is mistake making. But boy, are they learning at an incredible rate. But then somewhere along the line, we tell kids that getting stuff wrong is bad. And actually what's really interesting is you take that up to adult level and I've seen it in so many different organizations. You know, some of the world's most high performing organizations, whether it's elite sports or whether it's in the world's top performing companies, what you find is some of the brightest, most um, qualified young people working in those organizations become so paralyzed the fear of getting stuff wrong that they never innovate and try to do new. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, that there is something really powerful in that. And one of the things that's inherent as a challenge for us in education is we have to find a way to recalibrate the sense of what it means to fail. And actually, we need to do that through the education system so that we understand that it's the mistake making where the magic happens. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and, and there's so many... There's so many points here, I think maybe for a, for a later date. And I think you mentioned um, uh, kind of the, the, just how crowded the curriculum is. And, and I immediately thought about how I don't feel like I have the time to make mistakes because you've got to get it right first time because you don't get to redo it. But um, 
that is maybe maybe for another day. Couple more questions um, uh, to go, Richard. I uh, I know it's uh, relatively early morning over in the UK. Don't worry, I've had two coffees, Matt. I'm buzzing. <laughs> Things are fine. <laughs> um, okay, so what would you? We talked a little bit about some of those qualities of great teachers. What would you say to um, a group of uh, teachers about to graduate and go into the profession? I, I think the first thing that is hugely important to say to those young teachers is don't believe you need to be perfect or even great. Yeah. Um, it really resonates with what we've just talked about. You know, make mistakes, be happy and free to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Don't shirk away from them. Don't try and avoid them, make them and then reflect on them in order to be better. You know, great teachers are never see the weird thing is about really great teachers is they never think they're great you and i have both come across great teachers with loads of experience who always talk about what they've not done well what they've still got to do what they've got to develop what they've got to learn what they've just learned from the young teacher who's just walked into the school for the first time you know it's that ability to keep learning and listening um so so the really important thing for young teachers is to carry their passion with them to trust their instincts. You know, I think sometimes young teachers feel so fearful of doing the right thing. They spend so long listening to others and there's not a bad thing there that they, they forget to trust their instincts, their own professionalism, their own training, their own passions. Again, the greatest teachers are deeply authentic. They're vulnerable, they're human. Kids identify with them because they're not machines, they're not robots. And actually one of the arguments as to why technology will never replace the teacher is because education will always be first and foremost about the development of human beings, and that's about human interaction. So those young teachers need to not, you know, they need to allow themselves to develop and flourish their own personality, their own beliefs, their own vision and values, and, and to allow those things to, to happen naturally. That's the first thing. The second thing for me, and again, I'm trying really hard not to be, to be part of the polarizing debate, Right now, there is so much complexity out there in writing and training and experts in education who are trying to teach us deep stuff about cognitive science and about behavior philosophy and about all. And I'm not saying it's bad stuff because it's not, it's great, right? It's really learning about this stuff is fabulous, but young teachers are bombarded with it and think they've got to suck it all in on day one. And actually, don't remember that ultimately teaching is a gloriously simple doesn't mean it's easy but it's a gloriously simple process of building relationships between you and your students understanding what they need and finding a way to translate that information into stuff that's tangible um, and over years and and decades you know, challenge yourself by learning some of this new stuff and, and also don't believe it's all correct don't believe it's all right and it's all right for you and it's all stuff that is black or white and has to be done. And you only understand as you develop your experience as a teacher which bits of this new thinking are good tools for you and which of the bits of the new thinkings aren't right for you. So don't feel pressured into reading everything, doing everything, believing education has to be complex and make mistakes, it's fine. And I know you write um, extensively, Richard, about that, about uh, uh, simple thinking and about how to actually initiate change within school structures and education systems. And if, if we wanted to find out a bit more about your work, where would be a good place to, uh, uh, to get in contact with you? 
Well, I mean, two ways, really. One through my website, which is just simply richardgerver.com. And there's stacks of stuff on there. I write um, a monthly blog newsletter. There's videos of my work. There's me, you know, there's me, my hard sell books and all that sort of stuff. But I hope that's a good place to find out a little bit more about me. There are my four books, which you can get in Australia through the usual outlets, um, which my first book, Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today, which was really the Grange story. Uh, Change and Simple Thinking, which are generic books, not specific to education, which, as you said, are about how we can be better at dealing with change and, and why we overcomplicate stuff. And then the fourth book, Education and Manifesto for Change, which is my most recent to date, which is really a book about the last decade of discovery of my life, which is looking at the narrative that we need to take between education and the world beyond it for our children and how we need to come together, collaborate and do things differently. Uh, and finally, look, I'd love people to connect with me on Twitter, which is just simply at Richard Gerver. And I promise, however you connect with me, if you reach out to me, I will respond and reply and connect to you because of what I said earlier, meet and connect with everybody. And I can, uh, I, I can vouch for that, Richard. You're, you're very quick to respond, whether it to be emails or um, on, on Twitter and, and I just, Richard, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time today. And every time we, um, we get to have a chat, um, I always leave feeling inspired and excited to, to get back into the classroom or excited to tackle some of those uh, quite complicated issues in education. And so thank you so much for your generosity um, and your time. And um, yeah, hopefully we can do a round two sometime. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure, honestly. And, and thank you for what you do for, for others in our profession too. And I can't wait for round two. Thanks very much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our first ever episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion today. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com and please remember to subscribe for future episodes. If you could please let me know what you thought of our discussion today, rate and review the episode on iTunes, it would help a lot. Please share these resources with anyone that you think might find it useful. Thank you for listening. Until next time.